Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rhodes? Well, we're going, we don't need Rhodes. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. No, I am your father. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And Phil, how the heck are you doing today? Well, there's lots of funny, interesting, amazing stuff I could tell you, but I'll just let you know that I'm I'm doing okay. Well, I'm glad I'm glad to hear that. Well, we got plenty of funny and cool and amazing stuff coming up in this episode, so we'll save it for for as we go through. How's that sound? Uh, what have we? <laughs> no, that, that that works for me. It works for me. Great. Why don't you tell people about all these this cool stuff we have coming up for them in this episode? Yes. Uh, this week, we'll be going after the ending of 1998 Something About Mary and the 1954 Universal monster movie, Creature from the Black Lagoon. And we'll be also talking about our favorite top 10 films of 1979. Yeah, we got covering all sorts of decades. We've got the 50s, the 70s, the 90s, not, you know, not even numbered decades. But still, we, we're spanning a pretty wide expanse today, I think. So it should be a lot yeah, of fun. Yeah, and I... A good range of films as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Nice to do a, a universal uh, horror, you know, monsters classic. We haven't really done any of those before, so this should be a lot of fun. Yeah, and as Universal are currently working on their new shared monster cinematic universe, it's going to be interesting to see where they go with that. But we're going old school. That's today. right. Yeah, one of my favorites, Creature from the Black Lagoon. It's uh, it, it's just uh, it's such a cool film. It's great looking. I love the look of the monster. It's uh, you know such an iconic creature, and uh, you know it's it's a fun movie. I think. It always gets me the uh, the quality of the footage from under the water. Yeah, this film. yeah, for it's sure. Just, it's just magical. Absolutely. Well, Phil, why don't you tell people what happens in the film The Creature from the Black Lagoon? We see a geology expedition in the Amazon rainforest, and they find a fossilized hand with webbed fingers, and they believe it to be a link between land and sea animals. Once they get news of this back in the U.S., they put it together an expedition featuring Dr. Carl Mayer, Dr. David Reed, Dr. Mark Williams... Kay Lawrence and Dr. Edwin Thompson. They get to the Amazon. They get on the tramp steamer Rita, which is captained by a guy called Lucas. When they get to the site of the research team, they find that everybody's been killed. It looks like a wild animal did it, such as a jaguar, but it turns out there was actually the Gilman, the same species as the fossilized hand. The scientists think that there'll be more fossil evidence in the Black Lagoon as the tributary empties into it. David and Mark dive to find more fossils. Meanwhile, the Gilman has spied the, the group and the beautiful Kay and he's fascinated by her, and so follows her. The humans end up capturing the creature after it kills the crew of the Rita, but it escapes and blocks the lagoon entrance with logs, so they're trapped. Some of the men work on removing the logs. Mark ends up getting killed by the creature, who ends up kidnapping Kay and takes her to its cavern lair. David, Lucas and Carl race after them and shoot the creature repeatedly. They rescue Kay, and we see the creature, riddled with bullets, sink slowly into the depths. And that's where it ends. Hmm. That is a, uh, nice, a nice retelling of a great flick and there some people out there be saying well how can we do after the ending for this one because there were a couple of sequels well to be honest 
I've never seen the sequels. <laughs> Me neither, and we weren't even sure. There was some debate uh, whether there were sequels to this or not uh, And and uh, when we were deciding to do the film. And it turns out that there are, but they're not particularly related except that they have, you know, an, the creature from the Black, another creature from the Black Lagoon. But it's not – really there's not much of a narrative thread between the films. So once again, we feel justified in our choice. And if you don't like it, there's not much we can do about it. So It's just, just imagine this is like the Star Trek reboot, you know, you know. Going back in time, fixing things. Yeah, exactly. Not that the original Star Trek needed fixing. No, right. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, and you know, sequels in the 50s are notoriously bad anyway, so hopefully our endings will be at least at the same level of quality, if not maybe a little better. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think mine's like probably, you know, the equivalent of a bad 50s movie. Okay. Well, (laughs) that that fits the theme at least, though. It does. It does. Okay, then. So uh, what have you got for your day after? All right. Well, David, Kay, and the remaining crew members return to the U.S. David wanted to stay and try and find another creature, but he realizes that they are ill-equipped to handle it, seeing as how many people the Gill Man killed the first time around. He takes his evidence to the military, and while they are skeptical, there is enough proof to justify a return mission. David and Kay lead a platoon of highly trained soldiers back to the Black Lagoon. The first few days there are uneventful, but one night, one of the deckhands disappears. A thorough search reveals nothing, but it puts the soldiers on edge. They set up a fully weaponized military perimeter around the camp, and it isn't long before things begin to escalate. And that's where we'll leave it for now. Ooh, okay. That's sounding good. I can't wait to see what happens with all the soldiers going up against the creature. Yeah, hopefully it'll uh, get interesting. So, how about Mm. your day after? Okay, for mine, the survivors make it out of the Black Lagoon and get all the way safely home to the United States of America. There they write a paper, and with some of the photos and other evidence that they they picked up, they release it to the scientific community. It does gain some headway about it being a missing link, but any mention of a living creature is laughed at, and the story is buried. Meanwhile, a submarine in the Atlantic Ocean, off the coast of Brazil, near where the Amazon River meets the ocean, starts picking up many sonar pings heading their way. Some suggest massive things. Their last transmission is... We can hear them outside. They're trying to get in. They're everywhere. That's my day after. Ooh, I like it. Creepy. I got a little chill up my spine there. Ooh. That has the makings of like a really like a like a you know like a actual modern kind of horror film. Like I love the idea of like in my head of like the, this big submarine with all these yeah. you know gill men attacking it from outside. Well, I'd be curious. Yeah, I imagine it's just yeah. You see everybody inside, and there's a sort of scraping and things outside where there shouldn't right. be any. That just right. be, that'd be yeah. freaky. For sure. Okay, though, but what, let's get back to yours. What's happening with the immediate aftermath with the soldiers and uh, going up against Black Lagoon people? All right, well, shortly past midnight, two of the creatures attack the camp. They manage to kill off about half of the soldiers, but the soldiers' use of hand grenades and fully automatic weaponry gives them the advantage, and they eventually kill them both. In the battle, the, the human's boat was damaged, and they have no choice but to wait for backup and a new transport. David is given the creature's corpses to study while the remaining soldiers fortify the camp. As David and Kay work to dissect the creatures, a dawning realization occurs to him. While these creatures are the size of fully grown human males, their biology reveals something shocking. They are babies. Ooh, okay. Yeah. I like that. Thank Twist you. in the biology. Yes, very good. All right, how about your immediate aftermath, though? Okay, the U.S. Navy sent ships and planes to investigate their lost submarine but there's no sign of it. However, other ships are reported missing, and it is noted that the disappearances appear to be heading north, towards North America. There were also many reports of whales beaching themselves onto the coast. Local reports say that the whales seemed almost desperate to get out of the water. Mm -hmm. Some also had strange bite marks. 
Then comes news of an earthquake in the Gulf of Mexico. Then another off the eastern seaboard of North America. This is followed by a tidal wave, the likes of which have never been seen. It goes inland for miles and devastates the eastern seaboard. Uh, the cities such as Washington DC, New York City, Richmond, Boston and more destroyed. Millions are dead. Before the USA can recover, they are swamped by an invasion of the strange creatures from the Black Lagoon, but also other massive monsters from the depths of the ocean. And that's my immediate aftermath. Wow, that's just your immediate aftermath. <laughs> <Okay>. Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait to see what happens in the long term there. Okay. Well, speaking of long term, what happens with you then? All what right. happens with these baby gill men? Well, David rushes out to tell the commander what he's discovered. He tells the man, Captain McQueen, that they're all in grave danger, and the captain decides that he's way out of his element and he may as well trust the scientist. So the soldiers and civilians pack up their most essential items, mostly food and weapons, and head off into the jungle to try and trek to safety. It's not long before they hear a roar that shakes them to their cores. David realizes that it can be only one thing, a mother lamenting the death of her babies. As the ground starts to tremble beneath them, David and Kay look back and realize they haven't gotten nearly far enough away. Rising up above the horizon is another creature. It looks exactly like the previous ones, but it's over 60 feet tall. As the scientists and soldiers break out into a full run, David realizes that there's no escape. The creature has left the Black Lagoon, and the Earth may never be safe again. Oh, I like that. Thank you. Yeah, it's all just trying to protect its kids as well. That's exactly. See, if they'd left it alone, they would never have woken up the the angry mama, but they messed things up. Uh, Idiots. (laughs) If if there's a monster there, you've got to consider it's going to have parents. Exactly. It's got to come from somewhere, (laughs) you know? Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, I want to hear about the uh, potential destruction of the United States here, so uh, give us your long term, Phil. Well, funny to mention that because my long term, America has been devastated. Oh, I figured. Damn you, Brits. Ah, well, it's not me. It's the monsters. <laughs> uh, after, the attack, after the attacks on the East Coast, another one happens on the West Coast. This time, the earthquake is located on the San Andreas Fault, and California sinks below the ocean. The surviving population moves as far, far away as they can from the coasts. Attacks then follow along the coasts of other continents, while cargo ships, pipelines, oil rigs, and any other man-made objects in or on the ocean are destroyed. Attempts are made to communicate with the undersea attackers, but all are ignored. Earth is now home to two warring civilizations and the creatures from the depths have the upper hand Mm. so basically it sounds like your film sequel would be directed by roland emmerich is what i'm getting yeah pretty much (laughs) with huge devastation loads of monsters right tidal wave earthquakes big monsters sounds like it would be right up his alley yeah i'm I'm, because i'm envisioning there's some kind of you know total undersea society way down in the depths sure yeah i like it you could throw Cthulhu in if you wanted as well, but oh, I didn't yeah. want to go that far. Yeah, well, why not? I mean, you know, listen. Got to keep it believable. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> All right, well, Phil, how about do you have any trivia from the Black Lagoon? Yes, I do. The creature's appearance was based on some 17th century woodcuts of two bizarre creatures known as the Sea Monk and the Sea Bishop. Huh. Apparently, Ingmar Bergman, the famous film director, watched the film every year on his birthday. So we could say he was a fan. You could or maybe say he really didn't like it, but he just liked to torch himself on his birthday. Who knows? <laughs> He's like, damn it, why am I another year older? I must suffer. <laughs> oh, it's taking away. I hate it all. <laughs> it was originally produced in 3D. Jenny Clark from the University of Cambridge discovered a fossil amphibian, which was found in the remains of a, of a swamp. She called it Eucreta melanolimnitz, which literally means creature from the Black Lagoon. That's fun. Uh, and in the scene where Kay... 
played by Julie Adams, is captured by the creature and carried into the cave. The stuntman misjudged the cave side and accidentally hit Julie's head against the wall. Some reports say she was knocked unconscious, others say she just had a really bad gash on her head. And also, Millicent Patrick created the design of the creature. Hmm. So, thank you, Millicent, for doing a cracking job on that one. Absolutely. Yeah, I love I love the look of the creature. It is really fantastic. Yeah, it is. It's, it's brilliant. All right. Well, that is the creature from the Black Lagoon. So, speaking of things that are creepy and wet and drippy, let's move on to There's Something About Mary. Oh, I like that. Halfway X, yeah. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, Ugh. yep. That's a yeah. Fairly Brothers film, so you know what you're in for. Yeah, and I, I quite like the song about Mary. Everybody likes it, except for me. Yeah. Um, well, it, well, there's something about it. That's what. <laughs> <laughs> uh, ouch. It was extremely popular, made a ton of money, and made the Farrelly Brothers, you know, overnight successes, basically. And, uh, you know, kind of helped cement Cameron Diaz as a star and, and made Ben Stiller a, a comedy leading man, which I still haven't forgiven it for. But um, I don't like it at all. I really think it's a terrible movie. I, I just – I've never really liked the Farrelly Brothers, to be honest. Most of their movies I don't like. They have one or two that I really enjoy, and they tend to be their least successful ones. But, um, yeah. Yeah. you know, I'm just, I'm just not a fan of this movie. So, um, But that may or may not come out in my ending. I mean, we'll see. Well, I'm, I'm guessing there's going to be a bus driver involved. <laughs> could, could be. I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do you want to talk us through – what happens in the film? Yes, I will. I would love to. So, something about Mary, 1998 film, as we mentioned by the Farrelly brothers, starring Cameron Diaz. I just thought though, because uh, 1998, next year we're going to get the 20th anniversary, so it'll probably be a brand spanking new Blu-ray of it. Yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> can't wait to not watch that one again. Yay! Yeah. But special edition steel book, you've got to get it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll pro- probably rewatch it just to see if my opinion will have changed any, but I'm guessing it probably won't. Nah, yeah. Uh, so okay. anyway, uh, it's a 1998 film by the Farley Brothers. It stars Cameron Diaz, Ben Stiller, Matt Dillon, and Chris Elliott. So the story goes, in 1985, high school student Ted Stroman, played by Ben Stiller, lands a prom date with his dream girl, Mary Jensen, played by Cameron Diaz, which is canceled after a painful and embarrassing zipper accident. <laughs> yeah. He loses touch with Mary after school until 1998. Then, on the advice of his best friend Dom, played by Chris Elliott, Ted, who's still in love with Mary, hires a sleazy detective named Pat Healy, played by Matt Dillon, to track her down. Healy finds her and he falls in love with her as well and lies to Ted about her. He also discovers that Mary's friend Tucker has been driving away Mary's potential suitors over the years because he's in love with her too. Ted tracks Mary down anyway. They fall in love until she discovers that he has a connection to Healy. Eventually, Mary gets together with all of her would-be suitors, including NFL quarterback Brett Favre, where it's revealed that the only one who didn't lie to her was the aforementioned Brett Favre. It looks like Mary will reunite with Brett, but she ultimately chooses Ted. You know, because that would happen in real life. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll take the, the nebbishy, you know, geeky guy who's kind of sketchy over the, you know, Super Bowl winning NFL quarterback who, you know, is a millionaire and a great looking dude. Yeah, absolutely. But she, she's not shallow, you know. She's going for, you know, who's going to touch a heart. Yeah, but Brett was Brett Favre was the only one who didn't lie to her. So he's not shallow either, clearly. Oh, that's true, yeah. And, Damn you, Brett. Yeah. So anyway, she chooses Ted and the film ends with them kissing. And that's There's Something About Mary. And there's a hair gel scene, which everyone knows yeah. about. I like the way you just really you hid your distaste for the film <laughs> and the tone of your voice. Hey, I'm a professional. I, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the, you, when I read a synopsis of a movie I don't like, you get no indication whatsoever that I didn't like I know, it because I I'm know, doing a just, job here, man. 
It felt like you just smiling the whole time. That's right. And you just dan- doing a little dance because you love it. Brilliant. See that? I, I am that good, Phil. I'm that good. <laughs> hey, and I, don't I know it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Well, why don't you take us through your day after? Ted and Mary go off and have a wonderful day together. Only a few slightly amusing things happen, and Ted makes it through the day unhurt. <laughs> they end up back at Mary's place. But as they settle down for the night, they realise they don't have any condoms. Oh, no. So Ted heads out to get some. After a comical misunderstanding at the chemist, or as you say over there, the pharmacy, uh, Ted is confronted by a strange bearded man. He pulls Ted into a nearby alleyway. I don't have much time, he says. None of this is real. Before Ted has a chance to say anything, the man looks back to the street, curses, and then runs off. His parting words, just no one, I'll find you. They echo through Ted's mind. That's my day after. Well, I can honestly say I did not see it going in that direction, Phil, so I'm very <laughs> intrigued. Okay. Maybe you want to see this sequel. Yeah, I do. I, maybe I would. Listen, if you're, okay. if you're writing it, I'm interested. Okay, then what, what about your day after? Cue the bus. Yes, well, Ted and Mary walk back to where Brett, Favre, and all the other suitors are, and they kind of have like a little, you know, chat, and then a bus crashes through the building and kills every single one of them. No, I'm just kidding. That's not really my ending. <laughs> but I did have that written ahead of time. Because <laughs> I, I figured, since I hate this movie, I should I should throw in a bus. But that's as far as I got with it. So. Okay. <laughs> uh, Ted and Mary start dating. Things are a little rocky at first, as Ted has a lot of anxiety, especially when he keeps trying to compare his performance in bed to that of Brett Favre's. Mary assures him that it's not a problem, and she's just happy that he works after, you know, that horrible zipper accident. (laughs) Ted moves to Miami to be near Mary's orthopedic surgeon practice, and they move in together. While Mary is a successful surgeon and brings home a big paycheck, Ted struggles to find a job. Finally, Ted gets an idea for a new business, a line of hair gel with a secret ingredient. Oh, good God. (laughs) And that's where we'll leave it for now. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, uh, what's that? I can't wait to find out what the secret ingredient well, is. Well, just you wait, because I guarantee oh. you won't be disappointed. Oh, good God. Okay. All right. Oh, I didn't see that one coming <laughs> either. <laughs> so tell us about your immediate aftermath. I want to know about this uh, shadowy figure. Okay. Ted puts the strange encounter behind him and starts his life with Mary. Everything is wonderful, and all of the craziness that seemed to plague him for most of his life appears to have calmed down. Both Ted and Mary are happy, but then the craziness begins again. More of Mary's exes appear, each other than the last. Various misunderstandings occur, and Ted suffers various injuries caused by silly and crazy things. He tries talking to Mary about it, but she, she tells him he's just imagining things and, and changes the subject. Ted goes for a walk, months later, and passes some singers who seem to be singing about things pertinent to him. He's always noticed it, but finally thinks that it's a little bit odd. A car pulls up, and the strange man he met months before is driving. Get in, he says. Who are you? asks Ted. My name is Truman Burbank. You need to get in the car now. I have the answers you're looking for. Ted gets in the car. Uh, I love it. That's uh, that's my immediate aftermath. Yeah, I love it. That's great. You know, I didn't even it didn't even dawn on me that it could be Truman. You know, from the Truman Show until you said that, and then I was like, oh, that's where he's going with it. Well, I just got thinking it's all because it's all so bizarre. The things there's the guy, you know, Jonathan Richmans there singing. Right, he got shot there and things. Right. But, and there's all these bizarre things going on, but everybody sort of goes with it. I know it's the comedy, but I just thought. Well, let's go this way. Yeah, no, I like it very much. That's fun. Okay, so, so what about uh, your immediate aftermath? All right, well, the secret ingredient in Ted's hair gel uh, what is, it? is uh, dimethyl amino ethyl methylcrylate copolymer, which turns out... Oh, don't say it. That, that always makes you go creepy. Oh. <laughs> which turns out to be the main ingredient in almost every hair gel. Turns out Ted has created a hair gel that's perfectly average in every way, just like Ted is. Ted sinks into a depression when he realizes that he's basically a loser with no job, no good ideas, and isn't as good in bed as NFL quarterback and MVP Brett Favre. 
He starts to stress eat and stays in bed all day, and it's not long before Ted and Mary's relationship has started to crumble. Eventually, Mary can't take it anymore, and she kicks Ted out, sad that their relationship has fallen apart, but happy that she's made a change for the positive. And that's my immediate aftermath. Ah, okay. <laughs> it's, it does sound a lot like life, you know, things happen like that. Yeah, so. yeah. Let's see what happens on that. Yeah. All right. Well, oh, let's uh, let's see what happens now. We have this, this the meeting of you know of the comedies here, but with the, something about Marion Truman show. I want to hear how this all wraps up. So give us your long term. Okay. Well, Truman drives Ted to a deserted warehouse. The back of Truman's car is full of strange machinery, as is the warehouse. Truman sits Ted down and explains that what he is experiencing is not real. It's all fake for a TV show focused on Ted's life. At first, Ted doesn't believe him, but Truman tells him about the similar experience he went through. And once Truman got out, he discovered that there were others like him. However, Ted's show is more comedy-themed and uses new VR technology to increase the size and scope of Ted's set. Everyone he knows, including Mary, is just an actor. Truman's equipment is to block their location, but they don't have long. Truman tells Ted that he can help get them out of there to the real world, but stresses it will be dangerous. Ted thinks about it. He thinks about all the past slights, injuries, and things that have happened to him. And he wants to get out of there. Sorting out everything they need, they head out. Ted is scared, but excited about heading to the real world. His true adventure is just about to begin. Oh, I love it. That's great. Thank you. And I also th I thought there'd be like a... I also envisioned there was actually loads of other of these shows. There's one of them be like horror-based as well, though. So that's somebody that I'm growing to be at a... A serial killer. Oh, you know, right. You know, twisted kind of stuff. Yeah, there. yeah. It's, it's, it's going to be a whole, you know, series of films. Right. It's going to be like the new Fast and Furious franchise. Right. True, <laughs> Truman. Right, right. <laughs> I like it. Okay, then. But what about uh, your long term? Okay. Well, Mary decides to get on with her life. With Tucker no longer around to scare off suitors, Mary is courted by a ridiculous number of men. She can't turn a corner without a guy asking her out. She spends time dating another doctor, a Texas oil baron, a movie director, a TV actor, a dentist, a floral shop owner, and many others. After a year or two of dating all these men, Mary realizes that her true love has been right in front of her all along. She calls up Ted and says, Ted, I made a terrible mistake. Will you take me back to Brett Favre's house? Because my car is in the shop. <laughs> so Ted reluctantly gives her a ride. And Mary and Brett reunite, having a whirlwind romance and getting married the following year. They then go on to live blissfully ever after for the rest of their lives, and Brett Favre wins seven more Super Bowls, beating the Patriots in five straight Super Bowls. <laughs> Again, you can see how I never let any of my personal feelings get into, uh, into, yeah. into the show at all here. Yeah. Yeah, I picked up a, yeah. a little something there. Yeah. I was just going to say, could you imagine her being Ted and getting that call and going for that split second going, yeah, oh no. <laughs> see, I thought that's what I thought. I thought that'd be fun and fitting. <laughs> Ted, meanwhile, decides he needs a new life, so he moves to California, changes his name for marketing reasons, and opens his first business, which eventually becomes a successful chain called Globo Gym. <laughs> White Goodman finally feels good. We're better than you, and we know it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Well, it made sense to me that he would kind of be like this bitter dude. He would go on to, you know... Oh, could be, yeah, kind of be a jerk and stuff originally, yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I like it. I liked it. All right. Well, that is There's Something About Mary. Phil, is there some trivia about Mary? Yes, all very good. Yes, there's some. <laughs> uh, one film critic said that Lee Evans' British accent was the worst fake British accent he'd ever heard. Lee Evans is British, and the critic must have never seen Mary Poppins. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> uh, the studio was reluctant to have Ben Stiller as the lead, so the Farley brothers picked the then-unknown Owen Wilson, 
The studio thought that was a slightly worse choice because they didn't have any idea who he was, what he was doing. So they went with Ben Stiller. Okay. However, John Stewart did audition for it, and Jim Carrey was also considered to play Ted at one point. Interesting. Mm. Keith David improvised most of his lines. He's only in it a little bit. Right. Pat Haley was played by Matt Dillon in the film, but Bill Murray was actually originally considered for the role, but the Favreys thought he was too old for the part. And Hank Azaria, Cuba Gooding Jr. and Vince Vaughn were also considered. Hmm. And that's There's Something About Mary. All right. Well, that will wrap up our endings for this episode. Let's move on then to 100 Years of Hollywood in 100 Episodes, wherein we share our top 10 films from a particular year. And this year we are doing 1979. So, Phil, why don't you climb into your time machine, take us back to those groovy 70s and tell us what the world was like in 1979. Okay, daddy oh, let's get with it, even though that's not the kind of slang they used back in 1979. A little more 60s-ish, but I'm with you. I can dig it. I can dig it. Yeah. Yeah, let's get hip to this one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, the time machine went back too far. That's why. Hold on. Right. A little malfunction, that's all. Yeah, 1979, the British Prime Minister was James Callaghan, then followed by Margaret Thatcher, and the US President was Jimmy Carter. Uh, 1979 was the International Year of the Child, and the music for UNICEF concert saw ABBA writing Chiquita to commemorate the event. The Dukes of Hazard debuted on CBS. The Ayatollah Khomeini returned to Tehran, Iran after 15 years in exile and created the Council of the Islamic Revolution. Guardian Angels formed in New York City. The Sahara Desert experienced snow for 30 minutes on the 18th of February. Wow, I didn't know that. Right, that's pretty cool. Uh, Mardi, Gras, Mardi Gras celebrations in New Orleans were cancelled due to a strike by the New Orleans Police Department. Imagine that, you're going to New Orleans for the holiday. Yeah, right. You know, you saved up for it. Yay! Oh, it's not on. <laughs> right. uh, I bought all these beads. Uh, <laughs> Voyager 1 made its closest approach to Jupiter, which was 172,000 miles, which is quite close when you're going, you know, cosmic. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jimmy Carter was attacked by a swamp rabbit while fishing. <laughs> okay, I'd never heard that before. I don't even <laughs> know a... what a swamp rabbit is. It's just a rabbit which jumps in the swamp when I looked into it. Oh, well, that's a so, pretty fitting name then, I guess. Yeah. Uh, this McDonald's introduced the Happy Mail. Oh, fun. Sony Walkman went on sale for the first time in Japan. Disco music dominated the charts, but Pink Floyd's The Wall was released. Mm. Uh, we also saw the births of Rosamund Pike, Tatiana Ali, Jennifer Love Hewitt, Luke Evans, Danny Pudi, Oscar Isaac, Lee Pace, Heath Ledger, Claire Danes, Kate Hudson, James McAvoy, Rosario Dawson, Jason Momoa, Marina Baccarin, Felicia Day, John Krasinski, Brandon Ruth, Aaron Paul, and Rose Byrne. That's a whole lot of awesome people who should not be younger than me. Yeah, it gets me that Rosamund Pike is the same age as Tatiana Ali, who was on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Yes, yeah, so as the little girl, right, yeah. yeah. And James McAvoy, what's got, I thought he was yeah, just I know, crazy. I know, it's, uh, I don't want to dwell on it. Anyway, continue. All these yeah, people younger than, than me who've been really successful oh did i say younger than me i i meant older than me i i must have misspoken there <laughs> that's that's what yeah, the problem yeah. is okay sorry but like i i have got some similarities with some of them because you know jason momoa the way he's built and everything right i mean you guys are like the spitting image of each other absolutely well that's how i'd like to eventually become but right you know it's, it's a bit of a way i think i think like no <laughs> i'm never gonna get there <laughs> you gotta be honest yeah yeah but also uh, we saw the passing away, of, we saw the deaths of Sid Vicious, Mary Pickford, John Wayne, Gene Seberg, Zeppo Marx, and Merle Oberon. Okay. Well, it was an interesting year for movies, that is for sure. So, it certainly was. Why don't we jump into our list, Phil? Why don't you give us your number 10? My number 10 is uh, our, 
an American horror film directed, written, photographed, co-produced and edited by Don, Cosca, Don Coscarelli, and it is Phantasm, and it's all about a, a kid. Well, now let's, let's, wait a minute, let's be honest here, Phil. It's not about yeah. anything. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just, it's about a, yeah, I it's love Phantasm, but it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Yeah, there's, a, there's, a, there's some kids who find stuff, and there's a tall man, and there's the cool uh, spheres with spikes in it that kill people. Then you're on another planet, and there's dwarfs, and it's another takers, and it's a bit trippy. A uh, bit. It's a bit yeah, trippy. Gateways huh? to other, other planets, yeah. And there was a, a lot of sequels. Yeah, yeah, indeed. But I, I like it because it's just, yeah, I think it's it's got some cool imagery, which just stuck with me from when I saw it when I was younger. And it's just, uh, as you say, it's it's a bit trippy, surreal, but I, I really enjoyed it. Sure. Well, I will reveal it is also my number 10. Oh, so wow, we're brilliant. on the same page for that one. And I, I make wow, fun of it good. out of affection. I do love Phantasm. It's a lot of fun. But it really doesn't yeah. make any sense. Like when you watch it, yeah. it's like you said. It's like there's kids and there's an undertaker and then there's flying balls and there's an alien planet. And you're like, wait, what? Like, wh-? And then it all ends and you're like, well, that didn't clear anything up. Like it just doesn't yeah. really make any sense. And and the sequels don't make sense either. But I love them anyway. I really enjoy watching the films and they kind of get weirder and worse and better all at the same time um but they, they are fun all, all of them are perfect to sit there with your friends and just riff on them you know right just have a laugh about them right. and just go oh when you somebody gets one of those spike balls in the exactly head. that's exactly that that sums it up perfectly they're fun horror movies they're definitely a product of their time but i do enjoy them and uh you know whether they make sense or not so so joint number 10 not a bad way to start the list that is a good start isn't it yeah okay well my number nine is one we'd, we've given an after the ending to, and it is The Jerk. Ah, very good. Which was episode 11. Yeah, way back. Way, yeah, way back when, which we also did The uh, the Crow with that one. Right. Yeah, it's the Steve Martin film where he plays Naven, who's not too bright. He heads off to make his fortune and does so and then loses it all, and he hasn't really, he hasn't got a clue what's been going on the whole time. But a load of oil cans get shot, <laughs> and it's a massacre. <laughs> you know, the, the Jerk didn't make my list, and, and I, I felt a little bad about that. It almost did. It was on my short list, but the problem for me is I, I, I like the movie – I don't love the movie except for that scene with the cans. That to me is that's one of my favorite comedy scenes like of all time. Hey Harry, look at this. What's the matter with these cans? Die, milk face. <laughs> these cans are defective. They're springing leaks. Come over here and look at this. Listen, you better run for cover. You're gonna spring a leak. Huh? We don't have defective cans. We have a defective poison out there. He hates these cans. Stay away from the cans. There's cans in there too. But the rest of the movie doesn't live up to it, so it didn't quite make my list. But if I was doing a, a list of top scenes from 1979, that would probably be my number one because I do love it. Fair enough. Yeah, it is a good scene. Okay, but what is your number nine then? Well, my number nine is Star Trek The Motion Picture. Uh, now, it's not one of the best Star Trek films, and I imagine it's not as well-loved by many people. Uh, and I have a couple caveats to go with my pick, but let me let me explain <laughs> real quick. Um, I, I like it for a couple reasons. First of all, it launched the Star Trek movies, which I have great affinity for. As we know, I'm a big Star Trek fan, so um, a lot of times it makes it on my list. There is a director's cut of Star Trek The Motion Picture, which is actually really good, and it's much better than the original. 
It's a little hard to find now. They did it on a DVD. They haven't upgraded it to Blu-ray because it wasn't done in high def. So there's some issues with that. I'm hoping that someday they will release it on Blu-ray because it is a much better cut of the film than the original. So if you if you're if you're groaning when you hear me say Star Trek the Motion Picture, just know that there is a version out there which makes it a better movie than the one that you saw in theaters. But I think it gets unfairly maligned as being terrible. It's not terrible. It's not great. But um, there's still it still reunites the Star Trek cast and has enough cool moments and it's got the ship and you know the return of all these great characters enough that a geek like me a star trek geek like me uh you know still enjoys it so that's my number nine well i term a star trek geek but it didn't quite make my list it was bubbling under but it's just mainly because the reasons you said it's just the main problem i have with it was it's just it's just so slow it is it is definitely but it, it does it does look amazing the effects the effects are brilliant it's I've, I've never seen i've heard of the director's cut i've never been able to get hold of it though but i i, I am itching to see it and you know, hopefully it'll change my mind a bit, but it almost made my list, but just bubbling under. But I was going to put it on, and then I thought, no, I'm only putting it on because it's Star Trek, and then I thought it's not the best, right? It's not, right, it's which, not one of the best which ones. is why I did. But that's why it's at number nine and yeah. not higher on the list. Yeah, no, fair enough. Okay, but my number eight is Time After Time. Very good. Uh, which is uh, stars Malcolm McDowell, David Warner, and Mary Steenburgen, and it's basically about H.G. Wells back in the day. He's really made a time machine. He's showing some of his friends and then another friend turns up. He's like in the house somewhere when the door goes again and it's knocking on the, um, H.G. Wells answers it and the police saying that they've been chasing Jack the Ripper and he's last seen in this house. And then H.G. Wells realizes that his friend is actually Jack the Ripper, but too late, his friend has got away in the, uh, the time machine and headed to the future, or in this case, the 70s. But luckily, H.G. Wells had put it so if he didn't have a particular key, it will return to the time when it was originally from. So he can then go to the 70s and try and track down his friend, try and track down Jack the Ripper and bring him to justice. So it's uh, a fish out of water. H.G. Wells in the 70s trying to come to terms with what's going on, you know, free love and whatever else was going on in the 70s at the time. Very cool. But it's uh, I remember it being a, a fun film. One, one of the ones with Malcolm McDowell isn't being all weird and crazy right which was quite unusual especially for those films in the 70s but it's uh, it's, uh yeah that's my, my my number eight very good it's a good choice i i had it on my short list uh didn't quite make my cut but i do enjoy it very good yeah i think it's one of the people not not as many people have seen it as you think yeah it's definitely it i think a little yeah. bit more obscure of a film kind of a cult classic i think definitely has yeah, its fans yeah. but it's not a well-known film outside of film circles i think yeah yeah well, my number eight is Mad Max, the original Mad Max, the first film in the series starring Mel Gibson, directed by George Miller. Um, you know, maybe could have been higher on my list, but honestly, when I think of the Mad Max films, the one that really gets me going is uh, is The Road Warrior or Mad Max 2 as it's known internationally. The first Mad Max film is very different. It's not as much of an action movie. It's more of like a kind of beginning of a post-apocalyptic sort of drama with some thriller elements to it. Um, I do like the film quite a bit, but it's not, to me, it's not the quintessential Mad Max movie. So it's not, uh, it's not higher on my list for that reason. Oh, fair enough. I totally understand your reasoning behind that. Uh, Good to see it on the list though. Uh, My number seven is Monty Python's Life of Brian. People probably know what it is. It's uh, all about (laughs) Brian who is uh, mistaken to be mistaken for the Messiah. And it's full of lots of, Monty Python doing what Monty Python do so well. Great dialogue, funny, twisted moments, things you're just wondering what's going on. It's got a spaceship full of claymation aliens. Right. It's 
got a little bit of male nudity that's your kind of thing you know graham chapman <laughs> does you know did like to pose a bit like that but uh it's it's very funny it's a good twist on the whole christ thing it was a uh, it was accused of blasphemy at the time, but mainly from people who hadn't really seen it. Yeah. But uh, I really enjoy it. It's it's one of those ones, though, as well. Lots, lots of the Monty Python ones as well. It leaves you cringing a bit, though, because you're just there going, because like Brian, you're going, why are they all being so stupid? Why can't they just see the logic of what he's saying? Right. But it's it's got great moments like Michael Palin, you know, bring me Wadwick and all that stuff. But uh, it's it's a, a very funny film. Sure, sure. It's It's got some good moments in it. I, I'm not a huge fan of it. I don't hate it. It's just kind of one of those ones that's there for me. Um, there are yeah, parts that make yeah. me laugh, but I find by and large it's it's I don't know. I find it a little tiresome. By the time the movie's over, I feel exhausted. So, uh, but it's a good choice for sure. Okay, so where are we up to now? Your what's your number seven? Okay, well, my number seven is Moonraker. Uh, probably not considered one of the high watermarks of the James Bond series, but the point remains. <laughs> I like my James Bond movies, even though Moonraker was clearly meant to be a capitalization on the success of Star Wars. That's part of why I like it because it's James Bond in space. I don't know if that it holds up as well as some of the other James Bond films, but I really loved Moonraker when I was a kid because it was James Bond in space. Let me make sure this is perfectly clear for everyone who's not getting it. It's James Bond in space. So, um, you know, again, cheesy. Maybe you don't like the Roger Moore films as much as you, you know, as other people do, but I think it's a fun movie and has a, you know, a nostalgic tinge to it for me. So that's my number seven. Okay, well, my number six, and this might be a surprise to you, is Moonraker. Really? Yes, because I don't often go with the Bond ones. No, I know. I do usually enjoy them. But, but this one... Wait, is it, same let me as guess, you. though. Is it because James Bond is in space? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> and also Jaws is in it. Right. It's uh, James Bond in space. <laughs> right, there you go. I'm <laughs> sensing a theme. Yeah, lasers and things like that. It's, I mean, as you say, it's stupid, it's ridiculous, it's, uh, it's just going off the whole Star Wars things. Because I recently read the novel, Moonraker. Oh, my God. It's nothing. He doesn't even leave England, right? In the novel, right? It's crazy, but it's uh, still well worth checking out the the novel, obviously. But it's uh, uh, I do like Roger Moore as James Bond though, because he was like my first one. I first saw him in the first Bond film I saw was Live and Let Die. So you sort of always have that thing where the first one you see is your favorite. Absolutely. It's just it's just fun. It's stupid. And it's got James Bond in space. Yeah, exactly. And it's funny because I think it's one of the more maligned James Bond films now. Yeah, but it's yeah. also one, it was one of the most successful James Bond films. It was the highest uh, grossing James Bond film, I think, of the first 10 or 15, you know, up until that point. I believe it was one of the highest grossing ones. Yeah, it was the highest, just to say here, the highest grossing one until uh, 1995's Golden Right. Hour, so that's a heck of a thing. Exactly. So, I mean, you know, it's you can make fun of it now, but people did really enjoy it at the time. All right. Well, my number six is... The Muppet movie. And, uh, you know, a lot of people love The Muppets. I think I've talked about this on the show before. People are, are like, you know, diehard Muppet fans. And I'm not one of them. I don't – I mean, I like The Muppets perfectly fine. But I'm not one of those people who – you know, I don't buy The Muppet toys or wear The Muppet T-shirts or go out of my way for, you know, all things Muppet related. But – uh, I do like them. I enjoy them. And and we watched the Muppet movie with my kids a couple of years ago after the, the current remake of the Muppets came out and then they got kind of into them. So we, we went back and watched yeah. the classic Muppet movie. Um, and it's basically a road trip film with Muppets. And it's really funny. I think it holds up actually really well. There's some really sharp humor in it, some good writing. Uh, it does have these characters that you know and love. And I, I think it's just a funny film. And, it, and I, I really enjoyed it. And my kids really enjoyed it. So uh, kind of an oddball pick, but it makes it on my list. Well, I'm a Muppets fan, but I didn't pick the film purely because I saw it once a long, long time ago and I couldn't really remember much right, about it. Right. Well, you'll be surprised. If you do watch it again, uh, I think you'll find that there's a lot more funny moments in it than, than you might remember. Yeah, cool. Because I always remember sort of being disappointed with the Muppet films. Right. Especially the earlier ones. Right. I remember the recent one, the first of the new ones, the Muppets, I, I quite enjoyed that one. But all the other ones sort of always, I went a bit, uh, yeah. 
They just seemed, didn't quite work for me. Well, I, I like this but one. But no, good pick. Okay, my number five, though, it's one you've mentioned. It's Mad Max. Ah, right. And as you say, when I like you, when I think of Mad Max, I usually think of Mad Max 2, the Road Warrior one. But uh, what I like about the first one is, because you mentioned it as well, it's uh, it's not it's not the, the apocalypse. It hasn't happened yet. It's society's almost fallen over there, but there's still people are still going to work. There's still police. There's still people going going to nightclubs and doing things like this. There's people still living their lives before, you know, the big fire, whatever, the nuclear war, whatever it is that does it all. But it's everything's falling apart. So it's it's not often you see a pre-apocalyptic movie this close to it, you know, the fall and everything. But you're seeing how this this guy, this policeman who loves his wife and kid, is just destroyed by what happens and then becomes Mad Max and wanders the wasteland. But it's, I, I quite like the fact it is before before what happens. But then you go from Mad Max to Mad Max 2, and, my God, everything's changed in such a huge way. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, for most of Mad Max, he's really more like mildly perturbed Max. You know, it isn't really until the end that he becomes Mad yeah. Max. He's like, so. he's, he's like a really good policeman. He's a top pursuit man, so he's good at, uh, at doing, you know, chasing down criminals. But it's only when terrible events overtake him right. that he, he becomes the man we like to watch racing cars. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, my number five pick is, speaking of apocalypses, it is Apocalypse Now. And, uh, of course, we all know Apocalypse Now. It's got, you know, everybody cool in it. It's Francis Ford Coppola. It's a, it's a movie that defines a generation. And, honestly, it probably would have been higher on my list because it is an amazing film if it wasn't for the ending. Because, man, it's like this incredible war movie for, like, two hours. And then it turns into, like, Marlon Brando delivering, like, a Shakespearean soliloquy for 20 minutes. And it's like... Ugh, what happened here? I, I just – I've never liked the ending of this movie. For as amazing a film as it is, and I do think it's an amazing film, I always am let down by the ending. So it it didn't make it higher on my list because I just feel like it, it, it falls apart at the end. But like I said, it's the, the film that defines a generation. And as far as 70s filmmaking goes, I do think it's a true masterpiece for the most part. Uh, so that's my number five. No, fair enough. Totally understand because, yeah, at the end is a bit of a change up from what's gone before. But, yeah. That's what happens when you let uh, Marlon Brando do it every once. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay, my number four is one we went after the ending for back in episode 42, so it's a recent one. It is uh, Walter Hill's The Warriors. Very good. Can you dig it? I can That's dig it. Yeah. yeah. Can you dig it? But it's, as we mentioned a few episodes ago, it's all about street gangs who are meant to be united as the street gangs. Some of them aren't trustworthy and kill some others and then set up the Warriors who then have to make it back to their base on Coney Island and it's it's a bit cheesy but it's it's cool it's like this as we mentioned as well it's it's like this sort of slightly almost sci-fi kind of vibe to it uh and it's just it's just got some good moments these people just trying to get somewhere and then they keep getting attacked by people in outlandish costumes who are these frightening gangs and it's uh I just I just well I really dig it (laughs) (laughs) agreed I'm a big fan as well Oh, cool. So, okay, then, so what's your number four? My number four is another movie we talked about recently, but not for an after the ending. It was on one of our top five lists, and it is The Black Hole, uh, Disney's uh, take on Star Wars, a yeah, lot of that happening yeah. in 1979. Um, it was a, a spectacularly known as a failure at the box office, but I think it's a really cool film. I know we talked about it just recently. I won't go on too long, but I love the design of the, the robots. The ship is amazing. That was the top five list. It was on our top five spaceships. Um, 
and and as we mentioned that episode, it the movie spoiler alert, the movie ends with everybody going to hell, and yeah. this is a Disney movie, which I find utterly fascinating. So it's yeah. a really cool science fiction movie. I, I think it you know it's just one of those kind of cult classics that I, I wish had gotten more love, but I, I I've I've loved it since I was a kid, and and. It's just really neat. So that's my number four. Well, I really liked the film as well for the same reason you did. It didn't quite make my list, but it was almost dead a couple of times. But it just got kept pushing back a bit because I don't love it, but I always enjoy it when I watch it. But as you say, that ending for a Disney film is my God, yeah. my God. Well, yeah, yeah. But it's a yeah, brilliant designs so like Maximilian the robot and the two uh, the two other ones, Vincent and and the other one. But right. uh, yeah, I totally understand why it's on your list. Okay, so where are we up to now? My number three. Yes. Uh, you just mentioned it a, a while back. It's Apocalypse Now. Ah, yes. Francis Ford Coppola. Totally agree with everything you said. The ending, I always sort of end up losing interest like the last 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, exactly. After, and after after that journey, you go and you want it to be a bit more... But yeah, but uh, the, just what an achievement it was to make that. Oh, yeah. Just yeah. crazy. And if you, see, if you see the documentary about, you know, Heart of Darkness about it all, it's you can just see what they went through. It's incredible. Right. But uh, yeah, it's... It's a huge, epic Vietnam War movie. But no, it's got great performances. It's got a, an appearance by Harrison Ford. Martin Sheen had a heart attack and almost died filming it. Yeah, well, not surprising with what he went through. I know, but uh, it's, yeah. If you've, never, if you've never seen it, if you've sort of been put off, you know, because it's a long film, it's about the Vietnam War, whatever reason, it's well worth checking out. If you like films, you, you've, you've got to see it. It's one of the ones you've got to have on your list. Yeah, I mean, it's especially from a technical standpoint, it is a masterclass of filmmaking, for sure. Yeah. Very cool. Well, my number three isn't quite so heady, but it is Rocky II. Uh, I think we've talked about this on the show before. I'm a huge fan of the Rocky films. I'm a big Stallone fan. But in my house as a kid, Rocky movies were like events. You know, when a new Rocky movie came out, we went to see it. I love them. You know, they're they're great. And this one, of course, is, uh, you know... I, I love all three of the first ones pretty equally, to be honest with you. But this one is a great one. Rocky finally gets to win his boxing match. And um, it's just oh, a classic. Spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> it's 1979. Dang it. <laughs> if you haven't seen these by now, then I can't help you. Uh, but I do love the Rocky movies. And like I said, the first three especially are all hold a special place in my heart. So not too surprising that Rocky Two ended up so high on my list. Well, my number two is Rocky Two. Oh, very cool. I wasn't yeah. sure. I wasn't sure if you were as big a fan as I am. No, I always I always liked the Rocky films. This one, this one kept flipping between Apocalypse Now and Rocky Two. Right, you know what what position? But I thought, no, if I had a choice, you know, I'm going to sit down and put Rocky Two on because it's, you know, you sort of watch it whatever mood you're in, kind of thing. Right, right, exactly. Whereas Apocalypse Now, you've got to go, okay, I've got these like three hours, I'm going to watch it. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. Uh, but Rocky Two, so they're basically you know neck and neck. But Rocky Two, uh, as you said, I just like I always like Stallone was, as Rocky is brilliant. This is the one, and Carl Weathers as well. Yep. And this is this is the one where he wins because, as some people still don't know, in the first one he didn't win the big match at the end. I just like it. I just and when you watch sometimes when you watch all the Rocky films together, I like the way you know the progression of the character. Yep. And they're still doing that, like with Creed. I mean, I love the fact he came back in Creed, and it's just, it's just you you almost feel like it's based on an actual, you know, Rocky was a real person. It's a film about this real person. It's even though. It's got some of the cheesy biopic kind of things, but it does it well, and you're just rooting for him the whole time. Oh, even absolutely. Though sometimes, he's a bit, sometimes he does stupid things, but you're still <laughs> right. there going, yeah, come on. Right. But uh, yeah, Rocky Two is my number two. Excellent choice. Well, my number two is a film that has already appeared on your list, and it is 
The Warriors. Uh, as hey. we, yeah, as we talked about, it's a great film. Walter Hill, who is a masterful uh, action director, uh, somebody I'm a big fan of. It is these you know crazy gangs. I actually just watched this movie uh, about a month or two ago. I watched it again. hadn't seen it in a few years, and it just holds up so so well. It's still so much fun to watch. The action scenes are fantastic. Um, you know the the just the whole aspect. I've always loved movies where like people are on the run or people are being chased, things like that. Yeah. So yeah. Um, it's a lot of fun, and I really really enjoy it. So. So that's why it's at my number two, which leads us to our number ones. And I have a sneaking suspicion yeah. based on what hasn't been on either of our lists that it might be the same. So, yeah, it's probably going to be the number one for lots of people's lists of 1979. I would imagine so. Yeah. Flubber. <laughs> Dang it. How did how did you know that's what it was going to be? I mean, it's it's always flubber. Yeah. Even though it wasn't made or came out, not yet. Right. Right. So the number it's one still film. flubber. Yeah. <laughs> That's the beauty of Flaubert. It can do so many things. That's right. It's so versatile. <laughs> it can even go back and be have come out in 1979. Yeah. Although when you see the poster of this film that we both probably got number one, it looks like that could be Flaubert with inside the thing which is cracked. Oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> You're right. It could be. Okay, Phil. So what is your number one? Well, considering the way we often really have a go at Ridley Scott about his films, it might, uh, mine is an Alien. Yes, mine is as well. Despite the fact that it's directed by Ridley Scott, it is <laughs> still a film I enjoy. Yeah, it's uh, well. Everybody who's listening has probably seen it, but it's one of the you know perfect monster movie film. But it's in space on a spaceship. No James Bond though this time. Right. Uh, but yeah, it's just it's just so atmospheric. It's just the first time you see it. You just, you just you, the, the fact you never see the alien properly all the way through as well, and you just go, what 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 is it? What's it doing? Oh, what do we got to do? And it tense things, you know, you've got Dallas going through the air vents and then it's there and you go, get out of there. And you've got Ian Holmes, Ash, who you find out what he is. And it's, oh, it's just brilliant. Yeah. It, you know, it's, for the record, I'm a bigger fan of James Cameron's sequel, Aliens, than I am of Alien. But Alien has so many iconic moments. I mean, there's just the dinner with the chest burster and the eggs, and you've got the spaceship with the space jockey that we don't know what that's all about. And then, you know, the creature, the design of the creature is just so fantastic. And like you said, you don't really see it. And then there's that shot at the end where it's it's hidden inside the spaceship like equipment. Like it just blends yeah. right in. It and it's unfolds. right in front of you the whole time. Oh, yeah. man. Like so many great moments in that film. So even though I like James Cameron's film better just as a whole, uh, you know, Alien just has so many indelible moments and it, it really just introduced this this universe that I've loved in so many different formats. I mean, even though many of the sequels were inferior, I'm still yeah. such a big Aliens fan that, you know, I, you know, I have the DVDs and the Blu-rays and I've read the, the novels. I've, I read the comic books. I've played the video games. I've got the T-shirts. i got the toys. Like, you know, just based off of this movie, it created this universe that I've, I've fallen in love with and it's been part of my life for the past, you know, 30 years. So, so obviously it had to be number one for me as well. Oh, totally. I mean, it's, I, mean I like the fact it's all... It's the blue collar workers as well. You're just like chuckers, basically. Right, and right. So not none of them are you know any chain and have to deal this, with this thing. Yeah. And you've got Yaffa Koto and Harry Dean Stanton ones to get the bonus. They're not going to do all this. It's but it's yeah. It's just it's just so good. And it's all a mystery, as you say, the mystery of this strange ship on the planet. Yeah. And then the, the space jockey, and unfortunately, it looks like all that mystique and you know what is it is gradually getting ripped away with Prometheus and <laughs> yeah, Alien well, Covenant. We can always count on Ridley Scott to let us down somewhere or another. Mm. Yeah. Even with the film uh, he made that was, you know, perfect, you know, 30 some odd years ago, now he's going to ruin it in current. Yeah, because you know. because as you say, Aliens is like, is, you know, it's it's one of the rare cases where a sequel is just as good, if not better than the, what went before. But it's the fact they went a different way with it and made it more 
you know, a war film. Well, not quite a war film, but, you know, soldiers going in and they, they made things bigger. Right. They did all that. But it's just, it's, as as the film deals with these strange eggs, the film itself laid this egg of brilliance and it's, yeah. it smacked us all in the face. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. So, And also the week that this episode airs, I think, is also sees Alien Day. Because uh, that's on the 26th of the 4th. That's right. LV426. That's right. So how do you like that? So this is our own yeah. little tie-in to Alien Day, even though we didn't know it when we set out to do it. No, <laughs> that's, that's true. Yes. I'm sure it'll be number one for a lot of people, but it is a great film. So that will wrap up 1979. Yeah, that's uh, some good films there. And as always, if you want to let us know what you pick for that year, then get in touch. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook and lots of other places. And you leave comments on whatever podcast platform you're listening to this on. Exactly. All right. Well, on that note, we should start to wrap things up. So, Phil, tell people what they have in store next week. Okay. Next week, we'll be going after the ending of Heathers and Children of Man. So that's a bit of a, you know, different kind of feel for both those films. For sure. And we'll be doing our top 10 films of 1990. A year I remember somewhat well. So (laughs) I'm looking forward (laughs) to revisiting some movies from then. Yes. As always, I'm sure there'll be some good some bad and some really bad ones which could still get onto the list depending on how much we enjoyed them that you know and that's that from those those teenage years so you know what yeah. what movies you love can be very different from what uh, you might love as an adult so it'll be interesting yeah. to see what uh, what we come up with for that oh definitely all right well then on that note it is time for us to take our leave of you as always we thank you greatly for listening i'm mike spring and i'm phil edwards and we'll see you next week after the ending phil how are things no Nope, just didn't even like that. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, I was going to tell you, but I'm not now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's my penance for uh, screwing up, uh, you know, three words into the show. <laughs> okay, I'm trying to think of something clever to say, and, you know, that's difficult for me because I'm not very smart, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, God help me trying to come up with a response. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, well, not too good because I was in the toilet before, and then I was just sipping up. I um, really caught myself and oh, do we really have to go there? Uh, really? Oh, you know, it's from, you know, something about Mary. I I know why. I just uh, I <laughs> okay, hate that movie and I hate that scene and I just, okay. I don't know that I want to. Oh, okay, ask me again. Okay, talking ask me again. about our bits and tackle on the show. <laughs> and Phil, how the heck are you doing today? Just got back from an expedition, trying to find you know the missing link, but uh, so far it's not been good. Um, I'm sorry to hear that. Did you run into any? I don't know. Um, I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, we we spent we spent over twenty million pounds. Uh, you know, I'm not sure what the current exchange rate is, but we've we've got nothing. Uh. So, it's been a bit of a waste of money. But luckily, luckily, I can't think of a way to end this bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Go, going in, I was thinking it was going somewhere. And then, yeah, I know that reminds me. Halfway. It reminds me of a quote I read today from a football coach from the back uh, in the seventies with a team that lost twenty six straight games, and he was quoted after a press conference where he said, "Well, we didn't block, but we made up for it by not tackling." <laughs> <laughs> this reminds me of that whole intro. So. Nice. <laughs> so, Phil, how the heck are you doing today? I'm pretty good, thanks, Mike. <laughs> that's, sadly, that's so much better. <laughs> But if we know two things about me, it's that, well, uh, no, I was going to say something funny, but nothing funny to say. <laughs> so, okay. okay. So if we know two things about me, it's that I can screw up an intro to a movie pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of them. Uh, never met an intro or a transition I couldn't screw up. Goes deep into you know the psyche of man and, and what it means to do stuff.
(laughs) (laughs) Very profound, Phil. Yeah. (laughs) The the psyche of man and what it means to do stuff. (laughs) 